Hello, and welcome to Beach House 34, the show that dives deep into true crime cases, revealing the truths behind crimes that reveal shocking secrets. Stories sure to make you just a little more paranoid, and maybe even lose sleep. Here is your host, Christine Wirth. All right, welcome back to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Now, before we begin with this case, just a heads up. This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical procedures, strong language, and explicit details. So if that's not up your alley or feel as if it may cause you some anxiety, I recommend skipping this one. But if you're intrigued, come with me as we dive into the case of a man called Dr. Death. I'm about to unpack a story that's as horrifying as it is real, something that will chill you to the bone because it hits so close to home. Most of us at some point have had to put our lives in the hands of a surgeon. We trust that we'll wake up better than before. But for the patients of Dr. Dunch, that trust was betrayed in the most gruesome ways imaginable, leaving some of his patients maimed, paralyzed, or even dead. But for many of Dr. Dunch's patients, that trust was betrayed in the most gruesome ways imaginable, leaving them maimed, paralyzed, or even dead. In 2011, a series of catastrophic medical mishaps began to happen around the Dallas, Texas area. At least eight patients with relatively minor back issues headed into surgery with Dr. Dunch, only to wake up paralyzed or even worse, never waking up at all. The terrifying part about all of this is that not only did Dr. Dunch drop the ball many times, it was a string of failures along the way that cost people their lives and their livelihoods. Patients like Lee Passmore, Kelly Martin, Jerry Summers, and Mary Eford, whose lives or lives of their families would never be the same, all because one doctor and a system that allowed it to happen. These are their stories and the story of the doctor that ultimately betrayed them. In 2011, Ken Fennell was having back issues. He wasn't familiar with the Dallas area. He had just moved from Memphis, but he knew that he needed to have back surgery. He located a local surgeon and set up an appointment with him. The man that he met with was Dr. Christopher Dunch. Ken felt that upon their first meeting, He had this arrogance to him that I'm the greatest. I can do it. He was telling you what a great surgeon he was, and that nobody else in Dallas knew what they were doing, and he was going to take over Dallas. Red flags, anyone? So, in November of 2011... Ken Fennell went into surgery with Dr. Dunch as the surgeon. 
it would be Dr. Dunch's first surgery at his newly hired location, Baylor Hospital. Later, the Fennels discovered that Dr. Dunch had operated on the wrong part of his back. The pain for Ken was too much, so he went back to Dr. Dunch to have him fix it and went through a second surgery. After Ken's second surgery, Ken states, I came out of that second surgery and I was paralyzed from my waist down and felt like there was a bonfire burning on me, on my legs. Dunch's answer to this? Send Ken off to rehab, which Ken did, but Dr. Dunch never checked on him. Ken and his wife would later find out that Dunch had taken a chunk out of Ken's femoral nerve. Now, the femoral nerve, for those that don't know, I know I certainly didn't. It's a major nerve that helps you feel sensations on your thigh and also helps your leg muscles move. Ken spent months in rehab just to get to the point where he could walk with a cane. What Ken didn't know was that by the time he had had his second surgery with Dr. Dunch, a string of botched surgeries, including two deaths, had already been attributed to Dr. Dunch. You might wonder, as I did, how in the hell was Dunch allowed to operate at all? We'll get into that, and the answer will likely surprise and anger you. But let's first hear the stories of Dunch's other victims along the way. In December of 2011, Lee Passmore, a seasoned investigator at the Collin County Medical Examiner's Office north of Dallas, was no stranger to back pain, but it had gotten worse. He talked with a doctor that he knew personally and asked if he had a recommendation uh, for a back surgeon for him. His doctor friend didn't know offhand, but did, however, say that he recently had lunch with a Dr. Dunch, quote, a guy who seemed to know what he was talking about. And he gave Lee the surgeon's information. Lee trusted the advice of this friend of his. And at the end of December of 2011, just one day before New Year's Eve, Lee arrived at Baylor Hospital to have surgery with Dr. Dunch. Another surgeon by the name of Dr. Mark Hoyle assisted in the operation. Now, during surgery, Dr. Hoyle watched in horror as Dr. Dunch began to cut a ligament around the spinal cord area, usually untouched in these types of procedures. Dr. Hoyle spoke up and asked Dr. Dunch, what are you doing? That ligament didn't need to be cut. Dr. Dunch ignored Dr. Hoyle's advice and kept on. It wasn't long before the floor of the operating room was covered in nothing but Lee's blood. Dr. Hoyle watched as Dr. Dunch inserted a screw in the wrong location and then stripped it, making it impossible to correct. Dr. Hoyle had had enough and he stepped between Dr. Dunch and the patient in an attempt to get him to stop what he was doing. What happened next was unclear, but we do know that Dr. Hoyle 
ended up storming out of the operating room, swearing to never work with Dr. Dunch again. Now, Lee, thankfully, survived the surgery, but not without after effects. According to later investigations, Lee has a screw that is poking into his spinal canal and can't be removed because he might bleed to death. He now suffers from chronic pain, worse than before, and has significant trouble just walking. Not too long after Lee's surgery in January of 2012, another man, Barry Morgoloff, who ran a pool service company, was suffering significant back pain. For years, he had unloaded trucks and it had taken its toll on him. He tried back support and exercises, but nothing was helping. He was desperate for some relief. He had had back surgery in the past, but things just seemed to be escalating. A pain specialist that Barry often saw referred him to Dr. Dunch. Barry researched this doctor. He had great reviews and people seemed to love him. I read everything I could about this guy. Barry felt confident to set up an appointment with Dr. Dunch. After his appointment, he said, Phenomenal. Great guy. Loved him. Most importantly, I was in pain and somebody, a neurosurgeon, said, I can fix you. Barry arrived on January 11th, 2012 for his surgery at Baylor. Now, in the operating room, a vascular surgeon by the name of Dr. Kirby, who will become very important to the story, assisted. It wasn't considered a complicated surgery, and as a matter of fact, it was considered a very routine one. Dr. Kirby said, In the spectrum of what a neurosurgeon does for a living, doing an anterior lumbar fusion procedure is probably the easiest thing that they do on a daily basis. He further mentioned that before the surgery even began, Dr. Dunch bragged to Dr. Kirby that most of the spine surgery being done in Dallas was malpractice and he was going to have to clean things up. The surgery began and it wasn't long before Dr. Dunch found himself in the middle of a big problem. Instead of using a scalpel, which is what he should have used, Dr. Dunch instead grabbed a large instrument that could easily harm the spine. He had a difficult time moving blood vessels out of the way and nicked the patient's vertebral artery, causing the area to fill with blood. He then encountered difficulty moving the plate that was needed into place. When Dr. Kirby noticed what he was doing, he questioned Dr. Dunch and wanted to take over the surgery, afraid that Dr. Dunch was risking the life of the patient. Again, Dr. Dunch refused, believing he knew better, and Dr. Kirby ended up leaving the room. When Barry awoke from his surgery, he was in agony, and he had no feeling in his left leg. When he asked Dunch for pain medication, he was told that, or Dunch told him that he was a drug seeker and refused to give him any. Barry then went back to his original doctor, a Dr. Michael D. Salams, who did a scan of Barry's back to take a look at it and revealed that there were bone fragments 
inside his back that were compressing a nerve root. Barry's original surgeon, he tried to repair the damage and he did what he could, but even that wasn't enough to keep Barry from needing to walk with a cane. Barry is quoted as saying, As time goes on, the scar tissue and everything builds up and I lose more and more function of that left side. I do my best to stay active, but some days I just can't get moving. The pain is continuous. One month later, in February of 2012, Dr. Dunch had an old friend visit him. Jerry Summers knew Dr. Christopher Dunch from high school, where they played football together. The friendship between the two had lasted throughout college, and even when Dr. Dunch did his residency, um, Jerry actually helped him at the research lab at the university. When Dunch decided to move to Dallas to start up his practice, Jerry came with him. Sources would later say that Jerry was Dunch's drug dealer and that Jerry had also sold drugs to high school students in Plano, Texas, according to the Texas District and County Attorneys Association. So Jerry approached his friend because he needed surgery for this old football injury that had gotten worse after Jerry had been in a car accident. I mean, who else would you think of, right? This guy has been your friend for years, and so, of course, you're going to go to him first but considering what we now know from the Texas DA's office, I'm not sure that going to this guy would be the wisest decision. Nonetheless, Jerry's surgery was scheduled for February of 2012, just a month after Barry's surgery. And again, it was at Baylor Hospital. Jerry felt confident going into surgery with his close friend being the one to perform it. And after the surgery was done and Jerry awoke, he couldn't move from the neck down. Later, it would be found that during Jerry's surgery, Dunch had cut an artery and it had caused uncontrollable bleeding. To fix this bleeding, he used a syringe full of a clotting agent meant to stop the bleeding. The problem was he used so much of it that it compressed Jerry's spine. Jerry was immediately taken to the ICU and had to stay there for days. He was mad as he very well should have been, right? And began to get depressed. His girlfriend at the time relayed what Jerry told her. And evidently what Jerry was saying to his girlfriend was, I want to die, kill me, kill me, just end it. After Jerry had been stuck in the ICU for some time, he became so frustrated at the fact that his quote-unquote friend hadn't even checked up on him that he began to scream and he told the nurses that he and Dunch had stayed up the night before his surgery doing cocaine. The actual truth was that Jerry and his girlfriend had gone to a place to watch a basketball game and have dinner. Now, Jerry did later admit that he lied about the cocaine, but he was so mad at what his friend had done to him and that he felt totally abandoned. He felt he just had to say something. 
Jerry is quoted as saying, I was just really mad and hollering and wanting him to be there, and so I made a statement that was not something that was necessarily true. The statement was only made so that he might hear it and go, let me get my ass down there. So where was Dunch at the time? He wasn't checking on Jerry. Turns out he had moved on to other patients instead of trying to determine the cause of Jerry's paralyzation. At the time, though, Baylor administrators, they took this drug comment seriously. So they made Dunch undergo a drug test. Now, Dunch at first stalled, saying he got lost on the way to the testing facility. But eventually he did take the drug test, as well as a separate psychological evaluation, which he also passed. The hospital, however, wouldn't allow him to operate for three weeks. Now, once the time had passed, he was again allowed to operate, but he couldn't do anything major. They had to be simple operations while this peer review was still going on. Baylor Hospital brought in a more senior surgeon to fix the damage to Jerry's spine. When he had finished with the operation, he wrote a report and blamed what happened to Jerry solely on the shoulders of Dunch. Even though this senior surgeon did all that he could, he could not fix the mess that Dr. Dunch had made. After this happened, Baylor did suspend Dr. Dunch, but only for 30 days, barely a slap on the wrist. After Jerry's botched surgery, Dr. Dunch, when he returned, was supposed to be supervised on every surgery that he he performed. Spoiler alert, he wasn't, and the hospital didn't hold him to that. Jerry, still paralyzed, said, Not only did he ruin my body, but he ruined our friendship. That's something you can't operate on to fix. After Dunch's 30-day suspension, he was back at Baylor, ready to perform surgery again. His first patient after he returned was a 55-year-old elementary school teacher named Kelly Martin. Kelly had fallen from a ladder in November of 2011 while she was grabbing Christmas decorations from her attic. Although she did what she could, trying to, you know, work it out, it never got any better. She didn't want to have to seek out surgery, but felt that it was really her only choice. Plus, her and her husband had a trip planned and she wanted to be in the best of health. So Kelly and her husband, Don, met with Dr. Dunch. And Don is quoted as saying, He sounded impressive. He talked impressive. He was very eloquent in stating the causes and the need for the procedure. He felt confident. We felt confident too. Neither Kelly nor Don knew that just a month earlier, Dr. Dunch had performed a surgery that paralyzed a man. He didn't mention it to them, nor did the hospital warn them. After an MRI, it was discovered that Kelly had slipped a disc and it was pressing on her spinal cord nerves. And good Lord, she must have been in excruciating pain. Dr. Dunch's recommendation was to perform a microlaminectomy. This is a very basic operation, and what it does is remove part of the spine in order to relieve pressure. It's so simple that the procedure takes less than 45 minutes. However, that was not the case 
with Kelly. In March of 2012, Kelly went into surgery with Dr. Dunch at Baylor. Even though he was technically supposed to be supervised, it was such a simple operation. Baylor didn't think it was necessary to have another surgeon supervise him. Kelly's husband, Don, headed to the waiting room and watched the clock. 45 minutes went by, then an hour, then an hour and a half. He began to get worried and checked with the nursing staff to find out Kelly's status. They told him that she was still in surgery and would let him know as soon as she was out. Isn't this the most frustrating thing? They give you the very basic of information, you know, kind of as if they're reading from a script. Quote, if anyone asks, just say they're still in surgery and you will let them know. Deep in your gut, though, you know something's up. Two hours go by and still nothing about his wife. Don decided to call his daughters to join him at the hospital. Eventually, Dr. Dunch did come into the room and told the family that the surgery went well, but that they may have to keep her overnight. He then said that there had been some complications and she may have to be taken to the ICU. The family had to be wondering now, complications? What complications? And why the ICU? For a simple run-of-the-mill back surgery? As Kelly woke up from her surgery, unbeknownst to her family, she awoke in agonizing pain and began to claw at her legs, which had started to turn blotchy. She became so agitated that they had to sedate her again. Meanwhile, the entire family is in the waiting room, worried sick and not having any information at all. Eventually, they are visited by a doctor who tells them that Kelly is in cardiac arrest and they're performing CPR as they speak. Again, the family watches as the doctor leaves. And again, they're forced to wait without any real answers. It had to be agonizing. They continue to wait and wait until finally an entire team of doctors from the room where Kelly had been operated on, as well as Dr. Dunch, came into the waiting room. Their hearts had to be in their throats by this time. They told the family that they did everything they could, but Kelly didn't make it. Even though Dr. Dunch was in the room, he was not the one to break the news. According to one of Kelly's daughters, Dr. Dunch looked at the floor the whole time and after the conversation was over, couldn't get out of the room fast enough. What Don or their daughters didn't know, or rather what they weren't told, was that Kelly's blood pressure had dropped significantly during surgery. But this wasn't because her health was bad. This was because during surgery, Dunch had punched too far through the spinal area of Kelly's back and severed a major blood vessel. While this is known to happen on occasion, it is very rare. All the signs of major blood loss were there, but Dunch continued to operate. I can't even imagine what this family went through. A simple surgery, they were told, and now... A man has lost his wife, 
and two daughters have lost their mother, and it was 100% preventable. Later, an autopsy performed on Kelly shocked even the medical examiner. He was so shocked, he labeled the cause of death as therapeutic misadventure. This, by the way, was the same artery that had been cut on Dr. Dunch's friend, Jerry. The only difference is Jerry's was noticed in time to stop the bleeding. Kelly's was not. Baylor ordered Dunch for a second time to take a drug test. The first test came back and it was found to be diluted with tap water. A second test taken a few days later came up clean. The hospital administrators did a review of Dunch's cases and determined that his days at the facility were over. Kelly's surgery was the last one at Baylor for Dr. Dunch. Now, he wasn't fired, though. Oh, no. Baylor decided not to do that because of potential legal liability and they didn't want to be sued. Yeah, it kind of makes you want to scream, doesn't it? Instead, he was allowed to resign with full clinical privileges, which meant that he was allowed to operate anywhere else but Baylor. Dunch left Baylor on April 20th of 2012 and a lawyer negotiated the resignation. In the letter, the lawyer said, All areas of concern with regard to Christopher D. Dunch have been closed. As of this date, there have been no summary or administrative restrictions or suspension of Dunch's medical staff membership or clinical privileges during the time he has practiced at Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano. Technically, Dunch leaving Baylor was voluntary. And it was within the 30 day, 31 days, excuse me, of his rehire. So Baylor didn't have to report him to the NPDB, which is a big deal. So let's talk about this. The NPDB is short for National Practitioners Data Bank. And what it does is it tracks doctors and nurses, etc. It tracks to see if they've been sued for malpractice, if they've been fired, if they've had a long suspension, or even had their licenses suspended or revoked. This is not something that's available to the public, but it is available to other doctors and hospitals who use it to make sure that the person that they're hiring is on the up and up. Hospitals, though, tend to hesitate to submit reports to the NPDB because they think if they do, it might hurt the doctor's job prospects. And <laughs> seriously, well, obviously, that's why they're there, right? But also, it's they feel it might even prompt lawsuits, which is probably the more likely reason that hospitals don't report more often. A Dallas trial lawyer is quoted as saying, what happens sometimes is that doctors are allowed to resign in lieu of discipline so that the hospital can protect its perceived legal liability from the doctor. If Dr. Dunch was unable to get privileges at other hospitals, theoretically, Dr. Dunch could have sued Baylor and said, Look, I could be making $2 million a year here. You owe me $2 million for the rest of my life. And if you really want to hear something that will scare the shit out of you, consider this one. 
a group named Public Citizen, who is a consumer watchdog group, says about half the hospitals in the country have never reported a doctor to the databank by 2009. Now, granted, this was many, many years ago, but still, not only was Dunch not reported to the NPDB, but he also wasn't reported to the Texas Medical Board. Medical boards can act to prevent patients from being harmed if the hospital submits materials to them that justifies getting rid of the doctor. According to Dr. Alan Shulkin, who is a Dallas pulmonologist and was on the medical board in 2012. Had Baylor's action been reported appropriately, I would anticipate the board would have met within days to have an immediate suspension. Additionally, if the board had found out about Dunch, they would have investigated. And if they investigated, Dunch would not have been allowed to perform any surgeries during that time. Shulkin didn't shy away from placing the blame on Baylor, saying, What's the worst that can happen, a lawsuit? Come on, these are people dying and we're stopping because you're afraid of a lawsuit? Because Dunch wasn't reported, he was allowed to continue operating on unsuspecting people. He then went to work at Dallas Medical Center. While they were waiting, they being the Dallas Medical Center, on Dr. Dunch's references to be checked, they granted him temporary privileges. This is when Floella Brown came to visit him because of neck and shoulder pain. Floella Brown, uh, she was 64, a banker, was close to retirement and had finally decided to get a cervical spine surgery. In July of 2012, Floella entered into surgery with Dr. Dunch. About 30 minutes into her surgery, Dr. Dunch began to complain that he was having a problem seeing Floella's spine. There was so much blood. While operating on Floella, he cut one of two major arteries that supply blood to the brain. A scrub tech in the room recalls what Dr. Dunch had said. There's so much blood I can't see. I can't see this. Suck more, suck more. Get that blood out of there. I can't see. The scrub tech, Kyle, then went on to say, That's really concerning to me because not only that, he can't do it correctly when he can't see that, but why is it still bleeding? Floella had bled so much that the draping that was around her body became saturated and started to drip on the floor. Towels were put down to soak it up. He did try to stop the bleeding, but put too much pressure on the vessel and blocked it. It was Floella's primary artery, so this prevented oxygenated blood from reaching her brain. After Floella's surgery, she awoke and seemed to be just fine. Overnight, though, Floella had a stroke, and when Dunch was paged, didn't respond for two hours. When Dunch finally did get to the hospital, he ignored Floella and instead went on to his next patient, Mary Eford. Mary, a very active 71-year-old, had begun to have back pain, and it was irritating her because it was keeping her off the treadmill. Dr. Dunch was 45 minutes late when he came into Mary's surgery, 
Not only that, he had shown up in scrubs that a nurse noticed had a hole in the back of them. According to the nurse, Kissinger, quote, It's on the butt cheek of his scrubs. He didn't wear underwear. That's why it really shined to me. Not only that, the nurse realized that he had seen this same hole for three days straight. Apparently, Dr. Dunch hadn't even bothered to change his scrubs all week. To make matters worse, Kissinger also noticed that Dr. Dunch's pupils were like a pinpoint, and he hardly seemed to blink at all. The staff continued to tell him about Floella and that she was in critical condition. So, while in the middle of Mary's surgery, Dr. Dunch turned to Kissinger and instructed him to let the front desk know that he would be performing a craniotomy on Floella to relieve the pressure in her skull. So, yes, his solution to quote-unquote helping Floella was to drill a hole in her head. The huge problem with this was that Dallas Medical Center wasn't set up to perform that type of procedure. Not only that, it wasn't something that Dunch was even trained in. As Dr. Dunch continued to operate on Mary, this topic of a craniotomy was discussed at length, although discussed is putting it lightly. It turned into an argument not only with Kissinger, but later on with Dr. Dunch's superiors. Remember, he's still at the time operating on Mary, and the entire staff in the operating room began to question if he's, while working on Mary, even putting the hardware in the right places. He kept drilling holes and removing screws, and then drilling holes and then removing screws. The hospital wanted to move Floella to a different facility, but Dunch refused to allow that to happen. The craniotomy was never done on Floella. Instead, she was eventually moved to a different hospital and she never regained consciousness. Her family, days later, made the difficult choice of removing her from life support. Later, a neurosurgeon was hired to review her case and had discovered that Dr. Dunch had not only pierced her vertebral artery with a misplaced screw, he had also blocked this artery, which supplies blood to the brain and spine. To make matters worse, Dr. Dunch wasn't even operating in the right place. He had misdiagnosed where Floella's pain was coming from. So let's get back to Mary. Mary woke from her surgery in horrible pain. She found that she couldn't even turn over or wiggle her toes. The hospital immediately suspended Dunch's privileges and called in a well-known spine surgeon, Dr. Henderson, to try and salvage Mary's back. One of the first things that Dr. Henderson did was to look at Mary's x-rays. And after taking a look, he is quoted as saying, I'm really thinking that some kind of travesty occurred. It was as if he knew everything to do, and then he'd done virtually everything wrong. He was so appalled by what he saw that he decided to record the salvage surgery 
because he didn't believe that anyone would buy the fact that a surgeon had actually done this to a patient. Three holes were found in Mary's spine where Dr. Dunch had tried many times to place screws. One of the screws was inserted directly into her spinal canal. This screw cut through the nerves that control one of her legs. Dr. Henderson cleaned out the bone fragments left behind and to his horror discovered that Dr. Dunch, for some unknown reason, had completely cut out a bundle of nerves from the spine. That just makes you shudder, doesn't it? Dr. Henderson was so appalled at the work that had been done on Mary that he really thought that Dr. Dunch was an imposter trying to pass himself off as a surgeon. Even though Dr. Henderson did everything he could, Mary is now required to use a wheelchair. All that she wanted was to be able to use a treadmill again. And now that will never happen. You would think that with all of these botched surgeries, Dr. Dunch would be fired, right? Well, that, my friends, is wishful thinking. No, instead, Dallas Medical Center told Dr. Dunch that he would no longer be able to perform operations at their locations. But instead of firing him, they allowed him to resign, just like Baylor did, which again means that he can move on to another facility and still practice. However, little bit of good news, he was finally reported to the state medical board, not by the hospital, but by another doctor. The same one, Shulkin, who had served on the board previously. He had been told about the surgeries on Floella and Mary, and soon other doctors began to submit their complaints as well. Dr. Kirby, who had previously noticed Dr. Dunch's inability to operate, was one of these doctors. Once I heard about those cases, I called the medical board. I said, listen, we've had egregious results at Baylor. He was not reported to the databank. We've had egregious results at Dallas Medical Center. He's got to be stopped. Dr. Henderson, the one who had been called in to help Mary, also did his part. He called Dr. Boop at the University of Tennessee, where Dr. Dunch had attended school, and asked him about what kind of training Dunch had. He also spoke with officials at Baylor and called the state medical board. Now, the problem was that the medical board receives, get this, 6,000 to 8,000 other complaints each year. The process for going through the complaints is incredibly slow. It's also set up in a way that guarantees doctors the maximum legal protection. First, the board staff has to screen the complaint, and then they have 45 days to decide whether or not they're going to act on it. If they do decide to act, and only one in four make it that far, investigators start to gather hospital records. Now, once they have these records, they then send them to a pair of volunteer doctors in the same type of field who will then go over the case. 
once the case has been compiled, the investigators make a recommendation to the board, which consists of 12 physicians and seven lay people that are appointed by the governor. If they try to discipline a doctor, they have to have the proof. If the case isn't put together well, it could mean months or even years of court time. On average, it takes the Texas Medical Board nine months to resolve complaints. Some go on for years. But even while all of this is happening, no matter how bad the doctor or surgeon or nurse or whatever, they can still continue to practice. Nothing in the investigation is available to hospitals. It's all confidential until the investigation is done. So when Dallas Medical Center asked for information from Baylor, where Dunch originally worked, what Baylor did is they sent an email saying that there were no issues with Dunch's performance, a complete lie, and that he had voluntarily resigned. Evidently, Dunch did tell his next job at Dallas Medical Center about the Kelly Martin case where she had passed away and the Jerry Summers case, the friend that he had operated on, but said that the outcomes weren't his fault. He even went so far as to say that the reason that his friend Jerry ended up paralyzed was because of a bad drug interaction and that Kelly Martin had died because she had issues with the anesthesia, none of which were true. He didn't tell them that the reports internally at Baylor did in fact put him at fault for both cases. Now, obviously there are those out there who are trying to stop this guy, but no one seemed to be listening. Since neither Baylor nor Dallas Medical Center reported Dunch to the NPDB, even though they did a background check, you know, and everything, he came up squeaky clean. And of course, because, you know, he was never reported. So he was allowed to work elsewhere and ended up at Legacy Surgery Center, now called Frisco Ambulatory Sur Surgery Center, where he then operated on Jacqueline Troy. Now, Jacqueline Troy, she was, of course, yet another patient who also ran into major complications. The surgery went so poorly that she was transferred from the Legacy Surgery Center to a Dallas hospital so that a more competent doctor, and this was Dr. Kirby, could fix the damage that Dr. Dunch had done. Jacqueline had had neck surgery, and during the surgery, the surgeon, Dunch, had cut not only her vocal cords, but one of her arteries. When Dr. Kirby learned about the patient that he was going to have to fix, he asked if the surgeon was a guy named Christopher Dunch. Finally, Dr. Dunch was reported to the NPDB, but not by any facility he had previously worked at. No. The report was done by Methodist McKinney Hospital, and this is a hospital in a Dallas suburb after he had applied there and they had denied him privileges to work there. They rejected him based on his, quote, substandard or inadequate care at Baylor. 
So somewhere along the line, somebody at Baylor did release or at least tell them of this information about Dr. Dunch. Now, by this time, a couple of months had gone by and no one, you know, Dr. Kirby, Dr. Henderson, all these doctors that had reported him, no one heard had heard anything back from the medical board. So all of these that had reported him just thought that things had been taken care of and hopefully he was still not operating somewhere. They would be wrong. Dunch was next hired at University General. Now this place used to be known as Southampton Community Hospital and as Southampton, it had its own share of issues. Um, It had two bankruptcies and their former CEO had been sentenced to prison for healthcare fraud. In 2012, it was purchased by University General, which actually, as of today, evidently is now closed. I could be wrong. I don't know, but that's what I've learned. Even after Dunch was reported to the NPDB, Dr. Kirby received an invitation in the mail. It was from this University General Hospital, and the invitation was to come to a dinner to, quote, meet our new specialist, and it was to celebrate the arrival of their new neurosurgeon, you got it, Dr. Dunch. Dr. Kirby was livid. He called the hospital and raised holy hell. During this time, a Dr. Henderson is also frustrated because he had not even heard back about the case against Dunch that he and these other doctors had filed. So what he did is he called the lead investigator to tell him to get on it, for lack of a better better phrase. Henderson said that when he called, he said, This is a bad, bad guy, and he needs to be put on the fast track if there's such a thing. So by now, Dunch is at University General, where he again performed surgeries. And his next victim, which would be his last, was Jeff Glidewell. Years before, Jeff Glidewell had been in a motorcycle accident. He loved the outdoors and everything that went with it. But as time went on, the pain from the accident, this former motorcycle accident, seemed to get worse and worse. Even bumps in the road would cause shooting pain. He tried everything from cortisone shots to epidurals to therapy. And when they all stopped working, he decided he finally had to have surgery. To find a surgeon, he went online and found a Dr. Dunch, who had no bad reviews. As a matter of fact, he had four and five star reviews. He was impressed with his schooling. He had an MD and a PhD from a top medical program. He then visited Dr. Dunch at his office and Dunch told him he was one of the best spine surgeons in Texas. He believed that he could help Jeff and Jeff was happy that somebody could. As a matter of fact, he's quoted as saying, I was actually so happy with the way it went that I called my wife and my mother and said, I think I found somebody on my insurance that's gonna fix my neck. According to Jeff, the day he was to have surgery, there were a multitude of things that should have caused him to rethink it. Of course, you know, hindsight is always 2020, isn't it? Jeff said, 
We pulled out of the driveway, and as soon as we started going forward down the street, a black cat ran across the front of the car. I said, oh, Lord, this is not good. We turned the corner, and when we got on the first country road, and another one. Turning into the hospital, another one. I said, we need to just turn around and go home. If three black cats running in front of their car wasn't enough of a warning, after Jeff and his wife arrived, Jeff got all hooked up to his IV and waited for the doctor. And waited. And waited some more. The staff told the Glidewells that they were trying to get in touch with the doctor and after two hours had gone by and the doctor still hadn't arrived, Jeff thought it would be best to do it another time. And as soon as he made this decision, Dr. Dunch showed up. By now, it had been three hours after his surgery was scheduled to begin. Not only did Dr. Dunch show up late, he showed up in a cab and gave them the excuse that he had had a flat tire. Jeff said, He had on jeans that were frayed at the bottom. He didn't look like he was ready for surgery. Nonetheless, Jeff went ahead with the surgery. As Jeff's wife waited for hours, Dunch came in and told her that he had found a tumor in Jeff's neck and that as soon as that was found, stopped the procedure. His wife, Robin, was devastated. I mean, who wouldn't be? You don't expect to hear something that horrible when you're just trying to make yourself better. Robin said, I was devastated crying. Robin went to go see her husband, Jeff, in the recovery room. And immediately, Jeff was, Where is the doctor? I can't move my arm or my leg. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. His wife broke the news that the doctor had found a tumor and that he had begun to bleed, so they aborted the surgery. After Jeff had been in recovery for a while, it was apparent that things weren't right. He had begun to leak, for lack of a better term. Uh, This, it was later discovered, was from an infection, but when Dr. Dunch came in to look at the incision, he said, It appears to be normal. When asked why Jeff couldn't move his left arm, He was told by Dunch, Well, I don't know what to tell you about that. Robin was furious and began to yell and scream at Dunch. Good for her. She told the doctor that this wasn't normal and a nurse in the room was nodding in agreement. Robin knew she couldn't trust this guy. After what we all know now, it should come as no surprise that there was no tumor in Jeff's neck. Instead, what Dunch had done was mistake a portion of Jeff's neck muscle for a growth. The owner of University General needed to get this problem fixed and fast, so he called Dr. Kirby to please come and help fix the problem. Dr. Kirby had Jeff transferred to the Methodist Dallas Medical Center and took him into surgery. The first thing he noticed was that the incision was in the wrong place. Where have we heard this before, right? When he got inside to look around, he noticed a hole the size of a silver dollar in Jeff's esophagus. 
Dunch had taken out the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which would affect Jeff's speech, and he had cut the vertebral artery, which is a huge artery, in half. When Jeff began to bleed profusely, Dunch had taken a surgical sponge and placed it inside to stop the bleeding. When he stopped the surgery, he closed up Jeff with the sponge still inside. Dr. Kirby said, I, with reluctance, went down there and met the Glidewell family and took care of him. This was not an operation that was performed. This was attempted murder. After Jeff was moved to recovery, Dr. Kirby told him that he did not find a tumor, but rather that what was inside of Jeff's neck was a surgical sponge. Jeff spent four days in the ICU and had to go through months of rehabilitation for the wound to his esophagus. In the meantime, Robin went to the police and told them what had happened, but the police told her they didn't have the resources to file criminal charges against a doctor. So she filed a complaint with the Texas Medical Board. Dr. Kirby did as well. Dr. Kirby sent a five-page letter after learning what had happened to Jeff, and portions of the letter read, Let me be blunt. Christopher Dunch, Texas Medical Board License Number N8183, is an impaired physician, a sociopath, and must be stopped from practicing medicine. It wasn't until a reporter from a local ABC affiliate who had learned about what was happening and had contacted the Texas Medical Board that Dunch's license was finally suspended. So it took a reporter threatening to make it a public case to finally get them to act. Jeff Glidewell was the last patient Dunch ever operated on. The head of the board at the time said that the investigation took so long because, quote, it's not uncommon for there to be complications in neurosurgery. So this guy's record was not something that caused you alarm? Is that what you're saying? That should scare the crap out of anyone. He also said that the board just couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that a brand new surgeon just out of school could be so bad. He is further quoted as saying, none of us rushed to judgment. That's not fair. And in the long run, it can come back to be incorrect. To suspend a physician's license, there has to be a pattern of patient injury. And isn't there? So that was ultimately, that's what happened. But it took until June of 2013 to get that established. I'm sure the victims feel so much better hearing that. Dr. Kirby was concerned with that term, the term suspended. He is quoted as saying, I was terrified of that term, suspended. I mean, that indicates that he might get it back at some point in time. And I was already aware of the fact of how glib Dr. Dunch was and how disarming he was and how friendly and intelligent he appeared whenever he introduced himself to people that he wanted to impress. I was concerned that he would do the same thing in getting his license back, whether it was six months later, a year later, two years later. 
So what's the story on this guy, this Christopher Dunch? Well, it turns out he was a former football player in high school and had dreams of playing for a Division I team. He specifically wanted to play for the Colorado State Rams. Uh, He didn't have enough talent to land a scholarship with them, but he did land a scholarship to Millsaps College in Mississippi. But deep down, he wanted to play D1 football. So after one year at Millsap, he went to Colorado and he was able to make it as a walk-on for the Colorado State Rams. He worked hard, according to his teammates, and insisted on running the plays over and over until he got them right. But after only one year in Colorado, he became homesick and transferred yet again to what is now the University of Memphis. His goal was to play football, but the NCAA said that because he had transferred so much, he wasn't eligible to play. He then had to make a decision with football now off the table and decided that what he wanted to do was to become a doctor, a neurosurgeon, and wanted to operate on injured backs and necks. He did end up getting his undergraduate degree and then enrolled at the University of Tennessee at Memphis College of Medicine and went on to earn both an MD and a PhD. While he was there, he worked in a research lab uh, studying the origins of brain cancer and the use of stem cells. After he had earned his degrees, it appeared as though he might be heading towards biotechnology rather than becoming a surgeon. However, during his surgical residency, he teamed up with some scientists from Russia that were recruited by the university, and their goal was to explore the commercial potential of stem cells to help those with back pain. So in 2008, a company was launched called Discgenics, and their goal was to sell this technology. Even Dunch's old supervisors believed in the company so much they invested their own money. What people didn't know, however, and wasn't even revealed until 2014 by an ex-girlfriend, was that while Dunch was in the midst of all of his residency, uh, he had a birthday, which of course is not unusual. But this particular birthday, it was an all-night birthday celebration, and he spent this entire night of his birthday drinking, using cocaine, and taking various pills. In the morning, Dunch put on his white coat and headed to the hospital to do rounds. While Dunch was in the midst of this uh, discogenics business, a partner of his said that, quote, we would meet in the mornings and he would be mixing a vodka orange juice to start off the day. One time, he stopped by Dunch's house to pick up some paperwork and opened up a desk drawer to find a mirror with cocaine and a rolled up dollar bill sitting on top of it. Dunch was forced out of Dysgenics and his partners and investors ended up suing him over money and stock. Now, while the university wouldn't comment on Dunch, the chief of neurosurgery at the hospital where Dunch did his residency, this is the Dr. Boop that was contacted earlier, seems to have known about Dunch's substance abuse. 
In 2012, when Dr. Henderson contacted Boop because he was alarmed at the errors that Dunch was making in surgery, Boop actually acknowledged that an anonymous woman had filed a complaint against Dunch saying that he was using drugs before seeing patients during his residency, which we've already learned about. Boop further said that university officials had asked Dunch to take a drug test, but he ended up disappearing for several days. When he finally did show up, he was sent to a program for impaired physicians and closely supervised for the remainder of his surgical training. After Dunch was kicked out of dysgenics, it was noted that no one ever thought his plan to become a surgeon was really something he wanted to do. But this is what he was going to have to do now in order to make ends meet. There was always the question, though, of how many operations Dunch had performed during his residency. A typical neurosurgeon resident does about a thousand operations during residency, but it would later be revealed that by the time Dunch was all finished, he had only operated around 100 times. By 2010, Dunch takes off to Dallas. His first job in Dallas was at the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute in the Dallas suburb of Plano. He was hired here in 2011, and this is when he also received privileges to operate at Baylor. Baylor paid Dunch an advance of $600,000, and their reason for hiring him? They had received recommendations from Dunch's supervisors at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. They are quoted as saying, we were told Dunch was one of the best and smartest neurosurgeons neurosurgeons they had ever trained. And they went on at length about his strengths. When asked about Dr. Dunch's weaknesses or areas for improvement, the supervising physician communicated that the only weakness Dunch had was that he took on too many tasks for one person. Seriously, no one bothered to mention that he used drugs or that he had only performed less than 100 surgeries during his residency, or that he had had to be sent someplace because he was considered an impaired physician. This is unbelievable. If you think that was bad, Boop, the man who previously admitted that he knew Dunch had a drug abuse problem, faxed a glowing recommendation to Baylor about Dunch. He even noted, quote, Chris is extremely bright and possibly the hardest working person I have ever met. (laughs) Of course he is, thanks to the cocaine. Another supervisor, Dr. John Robertson, who is an old family friend of the Dunch family and an investor in Discogenics, noted in his recommendation that Dunch had had an excellent work ethic. So on paper, this guy looked like a great catch. So when Dr. Kirby first met Dunch, uh, shortly after Dunch had joined at Baylor, he said that he found him to be an arrogant know-it-all. I would see him maybe once a week at the scrub sinks or in the doctor's lounge. He is among giants up there. 
and he was trying to tell me over and over again how most of the spine surgery here in Dallas was being done inappropriately and that he was going to clean this town up. At the Spine Institute, the first place that Dunch worked, he only lasted a few months, but not because of patient issues, but because other doctors at the facility didn't think he was doing his job. Because in September of 2011, and this is before he went to work at Baylor, and according to Dr. Kirby, Dunch was supposed to be taking care of a patient and instead just up and went to Las Vegas. The administration was notified that the patient wasn't being rounded on, and after that, Dunch was dismissed from the Spine Institute. Two years after Dunch left Baylor, there was an investigation by state health authorities about Baylor's decision not to report Dunch. So what happened is Baylor got hit with a $100,000 violation uh, and a citation in December of 2014, but a year later, the citation and the penalty were withdrawn. Now you might wonder why, right? I know I did. Well, the answer isn't very helpful, unfortunately. The Texas Health and Human Services Commission wouldn't explain why, only saying that the, of course, records are confidential. So in an article where hospital officials were asked to comment, they declined. And I'll have links to all the sources about these in the show notes. Uh, they did, however, submit a statement, and the statement said, quote, our primary concern, as always, is with patients. Out of respect for the patients and families involved and the privileged nature of a number of details, we must continue to limit our comments. There is nothing more important to us than serving our community through high-quality, trusted health care. What a bullshit answer. After Dunch's license was suspended, remember just we've already heard about how worried Dr. Kirby was that they used this term suspended, indicating that he might get his license back. So Dr. Kirby, Dr. Henderson, and another doctor decided to contact the district attorney. They were all convinced that what Dunch had been doing with these patients was criminal. Unfortunately, it didn't go very far. Now, we do find out that Dr. Dunch's uh, license is finally uh, removed. He cannot any longer work in the state of Texas. The thing is, is that just when you think that, yes, you know, finally something has been done about this guy, you learn something new. So just because his license was revoked in Texas didn't mean that he couldn't move to another state and practice. Isn't that about the stupidest thing you've ever heard? In the meantime, a local attorney ended up representing 10 of Dunch's patients. And according to her, quote, it seems to be the custom and practice to kick the can down the road and protect yourself first and protect the doctor second and make it somebody else's problem. It took over six months and multiple horrific surgeries before anyone reported Dunch. Then it took the board almost a year to investigate, and all the while, he's still operating. In regards to the patients, which should be the focal point here, right? 
They tried to sue for malpractice, but many found it difficult because in 2003, Texas had enacted something called tort reform. Now, tort reform, should you ever come across it, um, means the following, at least in Texas. In Texas, especially, the idea or main goal has been to limit the size of payouts in lawsuits, especially in medical malpractice cases. Texas puts limits on how much money people can get for things like pain and suffering. Medical bills and lost wages, however, are not capped. The whole idea of this reform is to make healthcare more affordable, affordable and to get more doctors to the state to practice. In 2014, Mary Eford, Kenneth Fennell, and Lee Passmore, they all filed separate federal lawsuits against Baylor, stating that the hospital had allowed Dunch to perform surgeries even though they knew he was dangerous. Now, at the time, Greg Abbott was the Texas Attorney General. He's now the governor of Texas. But at the time, he filed a motion to intervene on these lawsuits in order to defend Baylor by citing the 2003 Texas statute that capped civil damages for medical malpractice at $250,000. And then he removed the term gross negligence from the legal definition of malice. So that's just awesome for these people. The suit that was filed said that Baylor made an average profit of $65,000 on each surgery that Dunch performed. Finally, finally, the Dallas County Criminal District Attorney's Office took notice because something happened that never, ever happens. Doctors were lining up to say that they would testify against Christopher Dunch. This never happens. Doctors are taught to fear lawyers and malpractice lawsuits. So when the DA's office began to hear from doctors, lawyers, and patients all about this same guy, they knew that they were up against something pretty significant. They began their investigation with six patients, which expanded to include every surgery Dunch had ever performed in the area. They discovered that he had gone through four hospitals in just under two years and had operated on 38 patients. 33 of those patients, 33 were injured. Some were minor or misdiagnoses, but most were life-threatening mutilations. The problem that the DA's office ran into was that they had two months before the statute of limitations ran out on Mary Eford's case, and this is important. The DA's office worked with attorneys who had ended up representing some patients in the civil suits against Dunch. So, you know, at least we know that some attorneys did in fact help get some of these patients something, thank goodness. The attorney that I mentioned before, who had represented about 10 of the injured patients, uh, her name was Kay Van Way, and she was actually the most helpful to the DA's office. She had given them so much information 
that they had a hard time going through all of it. But again, they had to act fast. If they don't get something underway before the statute of limitations runs out, it's unlikely that Dunch will have to pay for any of these crimes. And that's exactly what they were. They were crimes. The DA's office had to determine if what Dunch did actually constituted criminal behavior. Were doctors just ganging up on him? Were the patients he harmed just in it for the money? Or did he do this on purpose? Then they spoke to Drs. Henderson, Lazar, and Dr. Kirby, and Dr. Henderson uh, was one of the first to mention something about Dunch because he's the one, if you remember, who had to go in and fix many patients of Dunch's. Uh, The first patient he had to attempt to fix was Mary Eifert. Dr. Lazar, this is a new name to pop up, is a neurosurgeon who analyzed many of the patients of Dunch's as an expert. And he testified that it was inconceivable that Dunch did not know what he was doing to the patients and that he believed he had no conscience. Dr. Kirby, who we've become to know pretty well by now, made it his mission, obviously, to stop Dunch from ever operating again. So as the DA's office uh, prosecutors listened, they realized that Dunch was a narcissistic, possibly sociopathic person with a license to legally butcher people. While they did, they did have two deaths associated with Dunch and his behavior did indicate a pattern, it was hard for them to come up with a way to charge him for those deaths because it's not a typical case. They did believe that they had enough to charge him with recklessness. So their thought was to charge him with aggravated assault in the worst case. It was then that they realized that Mary Eford was over 65 years old, which means that they could charge Dunch with injury to an elderly individual. So what this did is this let them work with a larger range of punishment from third degree all the way up to a first degree felony. Because they now had a case, they had to keep this secret from Dunch. Because Dunch at the time, as they're doing this review, he lives in Colorado, but he has children in the Dallas area and does come to Dallas often to visit them. So what they had to do is they had to seal the records so that he wasn't aware of what was coming down the pipeline. 16 days after getting the approval to arrest him, the Dallas Police Department went to his hotel room while he was in town visiting his kids and arrested him. As he's being interviewed, Dunch kept insisting that his patients were 90% better. Yeah, Tell that to Kelly Martin's family or Mary Eford's family. At no time did he ever take responsibility for what he had done. While he was arrested, which was good, it now came time to select a jury to hear the case. But here's the problem. Dunch's case had made national news after his license was revoked because this just doesn't happen. So there were a lot of people that had already heard about the case It did take some time, but eventually they did end up with a jury of retirees, business people, and medical personnel. 
The DA's office presented the cases uh, during trial of Lee, Barry, Jerry, Kelly, Floella, and Mary during the trial. So during the trial, it was revealed that prior to Lee Passmore's surgery, and this was the first victim I spoke about, that Dunch's girlfriend told them about an email that he had written to her while he was high on cocaine. In it, he claimed he was ready to become a cold-blooded killer. This is what it said. What I am being is what I am, one of kind, a motherfucker, stone-cold killer that can buy or own or steal or ruin or build whatever he wants. So let's talk about his girlfriend for just a, a tiny, tiny moment. The thing is, his girlfriend at the time, Kimberly Morgan, she was also being sued for some of the issues related to Dunch because she knew that he was doing drugs and didn't report him. So the month that the trial was set, she was deployed overseas with the Air Force, but she did eventually testify via Skype from the Middle East and became one of their best witnesses, actually. Additionally, during trial, uh, the DA's office presented 39 witnesses over eight days. And when the case was handed to the jury, it only took the jury four hours to find Dunch guilty in the first degree. But because Dunch continued to operate after leaving Dallas Medical, he ended up injuring not only Jacqueline Troy and Jeff Glidewell, but a total of 15 more patients. During his sentencing phase, 10 patients and 24 witnesses took the stand to testify. So during the sentencing phase, the DA's office argued that many of Dunch's patients had to now suffer lifelong pain or even had families that had to deal with a loved one's death. People he was supposed to help now had to face the rest of their lives in wheelchairs, walkers, or have to use canes. The pain is never ending. And for some, it's burning, others stabbing, and others searing. Many of them needed more surgery to fix the damage that Dunch had caused, and many, rightfully so, are now fearful of going back under the knife. Just to kind of put this in perspective, on average, um, if you take all of the surgeries that Dunch had performed and for a regular typical surgeon, patients normally would have, in total, all of these surgeries would have only lost about two liters of blood. All of them to get, in Dunch's case, it was over 23 liters of blood. The DA's office recommended that Dunch be sentenced to the same term that he gave his patients, life. The jury left the room, and they were back within an hour. They agreed, and Dunch was sentenced to life in prison. He is not eligible for parole until 2045, when he will be 74 years old. There were so many people and places that could have prevented so many of these tragedies, yet they didn't. 
the University of Tennessee allowed Dunch to leave his fellowship and even endorsed him, even though his supervisors knew that he had a drug problem. Sure, they sent him to a program for impaired physicians, but even after that, his supervisors still signed off on his abilities. It's assumed that the reason that they did was because Dunch, having been involved with the company, owned a patent which was very valuable, and they had a financial interest in him doing well. And we all know how that went down and how he ended up in Dallas. But even the hospitals didn't stop him. Baylor allowed him to resign so that he didn't have to be reported to the database, and this way the hospitals saved themselves from lawsuits. Dallas Medical Center gave him privileges, although they were temporary, before they had received the peer review from Baylor. If they had waited, they would have known about Jerry and Kelly's cases. Dallas Medical Center didn't report him to the databank either. Legacy Surgery Center and University General had been told Dunch had issues, but they pretty much just ignored the information. Dunch used this to his advantage by lying to the hospitals about his history, and each time he got or left a new job, he had an attorney by his side. The next failure, the Texas Medical Board. The DA's office, at the beginning of their investigation, approached them for help in understanding what went wrong. They knew some kind of investigation had been done because the board had suspended Dunch's license, but when they tried to talk with them, they wouldn't give a lot of information. They were able to get some records, which showed how bad it all was. It didn't shed the Texas Medical Board in a good light. The board had complaints 10 months before Dunch performed his last surgery. And in the meantime, 20 more people were injured and seven doctors had complained to the medical board about Dunch, but it never went anywhere. To make matters worse, if they could be, a director of neurosurgery at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center who testified, said the following, quote, The only way this happens is that the entire system fails the patients. Another neurosurgery expert who also testified is quoted as saying, The conditions which created Dr. Dunch still exist, thereby making it possible for another one to come along. No wonder these patients are scared to go back into surgery. Now, usually most true crime cases that that I cover uh, will describe a situation that's not something that would typically be considered a part of our everyday lives. Um, it's something that we can usually disconnect from, right? saying, oh, that would never happen to me. It's something that happens to others. Of course, you know, knock on wood. Let's hope that doesn't occur. What makes this case, this particular one, so frightening is that it's so normal. It's something that happens every day 
thousands of times a day across the country. And typically it's not something that you worry about. But hearing about Dunch and what he did and all of the processes that were meant to stop it and didn't makes you question, hey, where does my state sit with this? And where, what are my laws? I sincerely hope that you or me or any of our family members never run across a doctor like this. But it's scary to know that even if a doctor has been, quote, put on notice, for lack of a better term, they're still able to operate. And you, as the patient, are none the wiser. On the flip side, for just as many dunches there are, there are thousands and thousands of doctors and medical personnel out there who are just the opposite. Doctors like Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson who do what they can to make this world better. If not for them and others that stepped up to the plate, it's likely that Dunch would still be operating on unsuspecting people. Thank you so much for listening. I sincerely hope you enjoyed this episode. It was <laughs> very eye-opening for me. Uh, please remember that if you like this episode, give it a like or a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe so that you're notified whenever a new episode is released. I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you.